How do you think this sentence finishes? The Son of Man came. Do you know how it ends? It's a little Bible quiz time. The Son of Man came. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not as familiar with the Bible and you're feeling like, oh no, I failed the Bible quiz. The Son of Man is a phrase that Jesus most often referred to himself. It comes from an Old Testament prophecy, most, most notably in Daniel chapter 7. It's the title of the Messiah, or if you wanted to put it this way, very plainly, the new king of Israel who would rule not just Israel, but the whole world. The Son of Man. So, to make it easier... We could say the sentence this way. Do you know how the f- Jesus finished this sentence? I have come into the world. The Son of Man came. It's actually multiple choice. There's all of the above. You could say Mark 10, 45. Were any of you thinking the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many? Or maybe others of you were thinking of the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. If you've been to church before, I'd assume that some of you have heard these phrases. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What wonderful statements about why Jesus came. But did you know there's one more possible answer? The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. I don't know if any of us were thinking that when I first said it. The Son of Man, Jesus said, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Compared to these first two purpose statements, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. This one seems rather anticlimactic, eating and drinking. One author suggests that the first two statements that I read to you are Jesus' purpose statements. He came to save. He came to seek the lost. And this third statement that I read to you, eating and drinking, describes how he came. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day thought that the Son of Man was going to come as a ruler reigning over God's enemies, that the Son of Man would vindicate the righteous, He would punish the wicked, He would rule with the sword. They were not expecting Him to come and save by serving as a ransom to give His life for the lost. They were expecting pomp and circumstance. They were thinking He would be in a palace, rule with might and strength and glory. They were not expecting that he would come bringing God's kingdom through eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. So they rejected him. In Luke's gospel in chapter 7, we see it in verse 30 right before our passage begins. Explicitly, they rejected God and Jesus. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him, him being John the Baptist. There is a group of Jewish experts, lawyers, scribes, teachers, and then their followers, these Pharisees, 
who reject Jesus' purpose and reject his methodology and ultimately rejected the wisdom of God. That's, by the way, what this passage that we're about to read is all about. If you want to sum it all up in a sentence, Jesus came eating and drinking, making friends with outcasts, with all the wrong people, and was rejected, slandered, and eventually sentenced to death by these very Jewish leaders. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Luke 7, 31. I'm going to read our passage. We're going to read verses 31 through 35. And my hope and prayer is that as we read this passage, and as we look at what it teaches, we will learn more about who Jesus is. We will learn about why he came. We will learn how he came and what this means for you and me. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. If you see in your bulletin, a sermon title is asking the question, why was Jesus called a drunkard? I wonder if that's news to any of you today. Is reading this passage and hearing that sound strange? Really? Jesus was accused of being an alcoholic, a drunkard? Wow. So why? Three reasons. Reason number one, Jesus was accused and called a drunkard and a glutton because, well, he ate food and he drank alcohol. This may seem obvious, but to some, we might need to think about this for a moment. Notice in verse 34 that the accusation comes after the statement, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Jesus is speaking, and he is affirming the fact that he has come to eat and drink. And if it parallels John the Baptist, notice, we're not talking just about anything. He includes specifically, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. So therefore, we can conclude, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, came and he ate bread, and he did drink wine. In fact, the first sermon in this sermon series on meals with Jesus shows that his very first miracle, his first display of public ministry was to be at a wedding, and when the wine ran out, he turned some jars that were for washing from water to wine, and it was the best wine. If you were with us last week, you'll know in Luke chapter 5, he called a man named Levi, who was this awful, terrible tax collector, and asked him to follow him. And as a result, what did they do? They had a big banquet. If you want to put it in everyday language, they had a, a, a party. And there was all kinds of tax collectors and sinners at this party, and he was eating, and he was drinking, and all of the people that were around him that were not sinners and tax collectors, the Jews, the Pharisees, they were confused. You know, as we keep going through this story, you're going to see Jesus eating and drinking quite a bit. 
Robert Karras sums up Luke's gospel this way. He says that in Luke's gospel, it seems like Jesus is either going to a meal, is at a meal eating and drinking, or coming from a meal. He did this a lot. But in case you've missed the last two weeks, these eating and drinking meals are not just to fill an empty stomach or satisfy and quench his thirst. Jesus eating and drinking represents something much better, more significant, a brand new world, a new kingdom. The presence of God is here in your midst. Joy that starts and flows and never ends. It also, I think, shows us that God did not come to reject the material world. He came in human flesh and he ate and drank and received what was good in this world and he blessed it. So for any of you that think that this world that we live in is spiritual is all that matters and the material, physical world doesn't matter whatsoever. Jesus begs to differ. He came eating and drinking in human flesh. He enjoyed it. And he didn't just do these things for the sake of a symbolic metaphor. He did them to inaugurate his very kingdom. So listen to the way Peter Leinhart has summarized this point. Jesus' feasting was not just a metaphor for the kingdom. It was a metaphor for the kingdom, but not just that. He didn't announce God's kingdom merely with his words. He brought in the reality of the feast with feasting. Unlike many theologians, teachers, Rulers, Jesus didn't come teaching an ideology or preaching a set of moral values. He came and declared that the feast of God's kingdom has come, and he did so not just by saying it, but by eating it. He wasn't all talk. He ate and drank a lot. So no wonder Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard. All through Luke's gospel, he's going to, coming from, at a feast, He's eating and drinking. He's eating and drinking even alcohol. Some of you, that might make you a little nervous. Wait, Jesus drank alcohol? There's no evidence that we can find in any sense, Bible or extra biblical, that Jesus did this in sinful excess. There's no story anywhere where Jesus is getting drunk or partying like there's no tomorrow. There's no reason to look at Luke 5's banquet from last week and see him around those shady characters and think that Jesus is engaging with their immorality, but rather drawing them to his contagious holiness, his purity, and calling them to repentance. In Luke chapter 3, we see that John the Baptist called some of these shady characters to repent, and they did. And they said, what should we do now? And he says, stop taking more money from people. So even before Jesus comes onto the scene, there's a whole group of tax collectors from John the Baptist's day who are repenting of their sins. Why should we not assume that these people that he's hanging around are just in the wrong crowd in the Pharisees' mind, but in Jesus' mind they have repented and turned and they're following him. I think the application for some of you is rather clear. If you think Christianity is all about following rules like don't drink alcohol, if you drink alcohol, you're not a Christian, then you would be just like these Jews rejecting Jesus and the kingdom that he has come. If you think Christianity can be summed up as it's just some rules, if you follow those rules, you're in, if you don't follow those rules, you're out. 
then you'd be rejecting Jesus just like these Pharisees. A while ago, about the 1970s, I think it was, uh, a guy that grew up in India as a missionary kid and then came to the States and became a mathematician and all kinds of other things, started reflecting on his days on the mission field and came up with an illustration of what he saw religious people often were like. I want to show you this image. It's called the bounded set. He uses this from a math illustration. I'm not going to try and explain the math and why he uses it. I've heard that even the math equation thing doesn't quite work, but I think the image is helpful. In the Pharisee's mind, in very religious, legalistic type people, he, the circle represents all of the fasting two times a week. It represents not drinking any wine or alcohol. It, it represents keeping the Sabbath day and keeping kosher laws and, and making sure you're staying with the in crowd. If you hang around the out people too much, you're now unclean. You go from these nice white people and then you get turned black. And this is the way they saw their religious views. Now, here, here's the problem here. The problem is that this is both good and bad. It's good and bad in the sense that, again, if, if this is your view of Christianity, all these people are all the the immoral people, and they're not going to go to heaven. And all the people that are good, well, they're in. If that's simply what you think, Jesus comes to destroy this image and say, this has nothing to do with my kingdom. But on the other hand, people have used this image to say, we shouldn't have any boundaries whatsoever. They've said that there shouldn't be any even doctrinal circle lines to say who's in or out, and etc. And so this, this has been, I think, used from the guy who used it first and people since then for both good and bad illustrations. Our purposes here for this point is that Jesus came eating and drinking, even alcohol. And so if you think that that's what it means to be a Christian, I want to help you understand something really important. The good news that Jesus came to bring is that all of us are sinners and all of us are out. And that Jesus Christ, who was in, the only one who was in, came out and became identified with us so that he could bring us in. And he did that by dying on a cross for our sins, by becoming unclean. And so this is the good news, that you are saved by grace through faith, not by works. None of you should be boasting, the reason I'm a Christian today is because of the great works I did. It is through your faith and by God's grace that any of us would be Christians today. So, reason number one, Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard, was because he ate and drank. And by eating and drinking, especially on days that are fast days, he was taking himself out of the in crowd of the Jewish teachers. And so, they slandered him and they accused him of these things. That's reason number one. Reason number two is that Jesus did not just eat and drink alcohol. Jesus ate and drank alcohol with the wrong people. And I think that these two have to go together in your mind if you're going to really understand why they accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. It wasn't just that he ate and drank. We'll see even in our next passage next week in Luke chapter 7. Look down at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and into the Pharisee's house, and they reclined at a table. It's not that eating and drinking was wrong. It's not that having 
banquets and fellowships was something the Pharisees didn't do. It was who he did them with, which is why the accusation isn't just that Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard. Notice carefully in verse 34, the son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That word friend is extremely important. The accusation they're making is not just that he's eating and drinking, and not just that he's eating and drinking with the wrong people. It's that he is welcoming, he is befriending, he is loving these people. You guys know in the Greek language, there's three different words for love, agape, or agape, however you want to pronounce it, phileo, eros. This word here is the phileo, the brotherly love. You have brotherly loved sinners and tax collectors. This is not just eating and drinking. This is saying something. And if any of you know first century culture, you would clearly know that eating and drinking with anybody is not just a meal to fill your stomach. Who he's eating with, who he's associating with and dining with means they're friends. And he did this so often, so regularly, that it offended those Pharisees who were trying to keep those sinners and tax collectors out. They're not in the circle. They're outsiders. They're not keeping the rules. We can't befriend them and be close to them. What they failed to understand is that the Old Testament pointed to a day when there would be a feast, and this feast would not just be for Israel, but it would be for all the nations and all peoples. And Jesus, by coming and feasting with those people, is showing, I am going to associate myself with the outsiders, with all the nations, with Gentiles, with tax collectors, with sinners. Jesus was going outside of the camp, outside of Israel's boundaries, and bringing people into his kingdom. So then that begs the question, does this mean there's no boundaries anymore, and Jesus is all there is, which brings us to our next image. So this missiologist, he says, the solution is not the circle with boundaries, the solution is Jesus' cross at the center. So all that matters in terms of who's in and who's out is are you headed toward Jesus Christ or are you headed away from Jesus Christ? So, for example, they would say, you know, you could be really close to Jesus morally speaking like Judas and look to seem from the outside like you're in. But we know Judas was headed the wrong way. Or you could be really far out like that person, like a tax collector like Levi or Zacchaeus, as we'll see later on. You could be really morally outside of the boundaries of Israel, but as long as you're headed and following Jesus, well, then that's great. You're in. You're in the kingdom. And my guess is if we're to compare and put these two images next to each other, all of you would be like, I like this one better. Let's have our church centered around Jesus. Let's not draw boundary lines anywhere. Let's just have the cross be the center. That sounds really pious and great, doesn't it? This, too, I think, has been used for both good and bad. As we apply these things to our church, it's not that Jesus was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners to just remove boundaries altogether. I think there's three fundamental problems with even this image here. Who's the Jesus at the center? How do we define who Jesus is that we're heading toward? Friends, that's called our statement of faith and the doctrine that lines a circle and says, no, no this is who Jesus is. So at Embassy Church, if you're a member or if you want to become a member, we go over the statement of doctrines 
And a lot of people would say, no doctrine, that draws lines and boundaries. Jesus is not about boundaries. That's like saying Jesus is just not about telling you who he is. That's what our statement of faith does, to help you know who this Jesus is that we are to head toward. The second problem with it is the arrows are describing this following and pursuing Jesus in a repentant lifestyle. But how do we define what that lifestyle looks like? Is it just up for grabs for anyone? Is there any standard by which we should follow in terms of setting lines? Like, no, you are clearly not heading toward Jesus. Well, no, I think I am heading toward Jesus. And that's why we have what's called a church covenant, which is like another line in the sand or a boundary marker saying, followers of Jesus look like this. They're not perfect people. They're not so holy that they're in the in circle because of how righteous and perfect they are. They're in because they have repented of their sins and they've trusted in Jesus and their lives have been transformed and they are, in fact, producing good works. So I quoted to you earlier, Ephesians 2, 8, you are not saved by grace through faith so that no one would boast. But we can't stop there. The passage continues in verse 9 and says, and God prepared in advance that you would do good works. Saved people live a holy, godly life and do good works. So the in crowd is not really demonstrated by either of these pictures. I don't know if you've even heard of them or seen them before. They've been used in all kinds of church and missiological books that I've come across. But I think the worst part about this picture is that it makes it look like the impetus is on us to come to Jesus. What we need is an image where Jesus is coming to us. Remember, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He's not standing around just waiting, saying, yeah, when you guys get your act together, you can come to me. Jesus is a seeker of people who are far out including tax collectors and sinners, and he befriends them and he loves them. So what is Christianity then if it can't be represented by either of these two images? I think we could maybe try and put the two together and draw lines around and whatever, but I say we scrap the images. What we have from the Bible and God's word is not images, but rather a person told through a story. And it brings us to our last and final answer for why Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard. Reason number three. Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard because he was fulfilling the wise plan of God. Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard because he was fulfilling the wise plan of God. Look down at verse 35 at this somewhat cryptic, maybe difficult to understand verse. Right after saying, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, Jesus then summarizes what's happening and says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. You guys got that one figured out? No, that's why you're preaching, Pastor Phil. Jesus is saying You Pharisees are rejecting God's wise plan of salvation. That's the summary of what this verse means. You are rejecting God's wise plan. The first thing we see in this verse that you need to make sure you understand is notice that the way wisdom is called her. 
It's personified as a woman. Now, if any of you, again, Bible quiz time, where in the Bible is wisdom personified as a woman? The book of Proverbs. So, for example, if you want to later today, read Proverbs chapter 8, and you're going to hear this lady wisdom calling out and speaking from the streets and telling people to be wise and follow her and listen to her and not be the fool. So all through Proverbs, you have this personification that God's wisdom is wrapped up in this woman character. Seems very obvious that that's what's being referred to here. Yet wisdom, lady wisdom, God's wisdom, the book of Proverbs, all those things, is justified by all her children. Now here's the next question. Who's lady wisdom's children? Well, if lady wisdom is a personification of the wisdom of God, who is God's children? Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. Now, in the Old Testament, his children would have been the people of Israel, but Jesus becomes the new Son of God, the new Israel, and all who follow Jesus now are the true children of God. But in this context, I would say that it's first and foremost meaning, yet wisdom is justified by her children, meaning Jesus. And you've rejected God's child, Jesus. Therefore, you're rejecting God's wisdom. This, I believe, is summing up what we saw Luke already say in verse 30. So notice the bookends. This is why I think it's best to understand verse 35 in light of verse 30. Luke is narrating here, and he says the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purposes of God. They have rejected the wisdom of God. Notice that in verse 29, when all of the people, including tax collectors, heard this, they declared or they justified God. So there's this link between verses 29 and 30, I believe, and Jesus' final word in verse 35 to say that God will be justified through Jesus Christ the true son of wisdom, but you are rejecting Jesus Christ. Therefore, you are rejecting God's purposes and God's wisdom and his plan. This is why Jesus says what he does. When you understand verse 35, I think you understand the rest of this passage. Look at verse 31. This is why he says, to what then should I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? Well, they're like children, like childish children, sitting in the marketplace, calling out to one another. One child says, hey, let's play a game. Let's play the wedding game. So they start playing the flute and say, yeah, we're pretending we're in a wedding. But then nobody plays along. Like, all right, you don't like the wedding game? That's too happy? We'll play the funeral game. And we're going to pretend like we're at a funeral, and we'll be one of those professional mourners who come to the wedding, and they're just wailing and weeping. And so now they start playing a dirge. They sing a, a song that's fit for a funeral. But then nobody, nobody starts mourning. It's like, come on, what do you want? The point here is that they are being childish, not childlike. Jesus affirms children as being a wonderful illustration of childlike faith and trust. This is the opposite. This is the rebellious childishness. I asked my wife earlier this week, I was like, hey, you got a good story for me that I can share of like one of the times our kids weren't really being very re- obedient and listening and I was like, what do you want? You want this? You want that? And she's like, Phil, that happens every day. How many stories do you want? So if you're a parent, you understand this childishness. Do you want some food? No, I'm not hungry. Okay, well, why are you sad? Do you want to lay down? No, I'm not. And you just can't make them happy. That's what Jesus is saying. 
by rejecting God's plan, you are basically saying, I'm in charge, and I'm going to set the parameters of how this kingdom's going to look. And you can't tell me what that looks like. The child having a fit, throwing a temper tantrums. It's got to be my way. Don't tell me the way it's supposed to be. That's what he's calling this generation of people that have rejected his plans and purposes. You are a childish little kid throwing a fit, kicking and screaming. I wanted to ask myself, that seems kind of harsh. Is he overreacting a little bit? Because honestly, one of the things that came up in my study was this phrase, glutton and drunkard, was something that you would have known if you were a scribe or a Pharisee. You really knew your Bible well, you'd turn to Deuteronomy chapter 21. So let's do that. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, we hear the law of Moses being given about a rebellious, stubborn son. In verse 18, it says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him and he still will not listen to them, then his father and his mother should take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, now, you guys following so far? You've got a rebellious kid that won't listen, and you discipline them, and you do everything, and they just won't listen. What do you do? Take them to the elders and say this. This, our son, is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all of the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, like being a rebellious son, then he is to be put to death, and you should hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Do you realize that when Jesus is being accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, he is being accused of being the rebellious wayward son that is leading Israel astray? Not the son of God who is leading them to the heavenly father. They think he's leading them away. There's a lot more than Jesus just eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. The reason he was accused of this is they're thinking in the Deuteronomy 21 mindset. This Jesus, as he hangs out and befriends these people, he is leading all of our people astray. He should be put to death. Proverbs chapter 23 is going to also explain that the fool is the one who is a glutton and drunkard, and he's going to become poor. So in both Deuteronomy and Proverbs, these scribes, they knew their Bibles really, really, really well, better than you and I probably do, combined. Memorized the whole law. And they're accusing Jesus of being the fool of Proverbs. They're accusing Jesus of being the rebellious son of Deuteronomy 21. They're telling Jesus, you deserve death. Do you want to know why Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard? Because in the wisdom of God, 
he would allow these Pharisees to slander him, accuse him of these things, and eventually take him to his death. That Jesus Christ would, in fact, be hung on a tree outside of the camp and not be hanging overnight, but then buried into a ground and then stay there as a dead man. In other words, Jesus experienced the curse of the rebellious son from the accusations and slander of those who rejected the wisdom of God. They thought he was a fool, not the child of wisdom. They thought he was the disobedient, rebellious son, not the obedient son of God who listens to every single word of the Father. If you wanted to sum it up this way, take the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin so that you would have the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, who knew no drunkenness, became drunkenness through the accusations and slander of the Pharisees and experienced the curse of drunkenness so that you would experience God's mercy, grace, and righteousness. He who knew no gluttony, never ate in excess, became a gluttonous person, not in reality, but by accusation and slander, so that he would experience the death of a glutton, so that you and I, who have been gluttonous, would experience God's blessing and not his curse. He who knew no rebellion became the rebellious son, not because of his rebellion, but because of the accusations of the Jewish leaders of his day, so that he would experience the curse of the rebellious son, so that you and I who have been rebellious to the heavenly father repeatedly again and again, and even though he's disciplined us time and time again, haven't you gone back and sinned again and again? You experienced all of those things. You've done all those things. You deserve God's curse. The wrath of God is deserving of a rebellious son and daughter. Is, is that you this morning? Or do you think you're so morally righteous that you're in the in crowd? He who knew no foolishness became a fool so that you and I, through the wisdom of God, would be able to experience the goodness of God's mercy and grace as he takes on the curse that's due a fool. Friends, this is the whole story of the Bible. This is how the Old and New Testament, this is Jesus' fulfillment of the plan and wisdom of God. And what he sees before him are a bunch of people that are rejecting that plan. What are you going to do with God's plan? Does it seem foolish to you? Paul's going to tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the, the cross of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the wisdom and the power of God to those who believe. You've got a choice this morning. If you're a Christian here, then it's perseverance in faith that this wise God has become sin for you so that you become righteous, even though you're so incredibly undeserving. If you're here and you're not sure what it means to be a Christian, I hope we've clarified what it is. Christianity is this amazing story that we are the rebellious sons, we are the fools, 
we are the gluttons, we are the drunkards, and I'm sure there's probably too many bad stories that none of us want to confess. Yeah, I have done all of those things. And Jesus became all of them on the cross for you. Do you want to reject this gift or receive it by faith? I pray that all of us would be encouraged and strengthened and very much warmed to our hearts with the fact that Jesus has come eating and drinking. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that this morning as we looked into your word and saw this wonderful unfolding plan of God right before us, from Deuteronomy 21 to Proverbs 23 to Luke chapter 7 and then finally Galatians 3, Jesus became the curse that we deserved. Cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. Thank you, Jesus, for this amazing offer of salvation. That you will go outside of the boundaries of holiness and purity and make us clean and pure by transferring that impurity onto yourself on the cross. No greater story. No greater message, no greater image than the one in our minds of Jesus hanging on the cross, dying for our sins, rising again from the dead after the third day, and making us new so we would follow Him with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. Not so we can have freedom to go drink alcohol like we want, but so we can have the freedom to follow You and make others know the goodness of Your mercy and grace. So, Father, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom in our eating and drinking. Give us wisdom to understand how your plans might include some of us to not ever drink alcohol again or for some of us to learn how to drink in moderation. Lord, give us wisdom so we can learn how to extend the arm of fellowship to those who are outsiders, who we're prejudiced against, who we think they're too far gone that we would invite them into our homes and befriend them like Jesus. Father, give us these things because we need them desperately by your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.